We've been walking the same old road for miles and miles. You've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. If you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. You got pain. He's a pain. Good to see y'all. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, I've gotten a lot of compliments this morning on my suit and my, especially on my bow tie, um, and, and I appreciate that. I, I think it was Mark Twain who said that he could live for two months on a good compliment. Um, I'm, I'm gonna try to work on that, um, but I appreciate it. And, and but but I got to be honest. I got several bow ties, and I used to wear bow ties a lot. Um, but it had been so long since I had worn one, I had to get Jamie to help me tie this one this morning. Uh, I couldn't remember how to do it. So, so really, she's the, uh, the one who should, have, who should have the credit for the bow tie this morning. Um, last Sunday, we talked about the idea of reconciling God's wrath and God's love and, and how the 
God's wrath can prevent some people or, or at least hinder some people in choosing Christianity. Um, you know, how for some people, they, they just can't quite get their head wrapped around the idea that God is so good and so loving, so willing to forgive, yet he promises condemnation for the unrighteous. Um, how some people find a contradiction in the idea that God could be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love like the scripture tells us. Um, yet in his words to Abraham, he said that he would by no means pardon the guilty. Um, but the answer to that, the answer to that, what might be a, a, a seeming contradiction is Jesus. Um, the answer to that is that God so loves this world, he, he loves this world so much that he sent his only begotten son to die as a sacrifice so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So today, I want to take a, a, a deep dive, or I don't know, y'all might, we might get done and y'all might think, well, that wasn't too deep, um, but maybe as deep as I can go, um, into the idea how do we know, it, 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 well, let me back up. It, the idea that I want to talk about, it, it's another idea that um, can prevent people from choosing Christianity. Um, but before we get to that question, I want to ask you all a question. And the question is, are you, would you say for yourself that you are generally skeptical? Are you generally a skeptical person? In other words, if you see something that doesn't look quite right, it, hear something that doesn't sound quite right, or, um, are you more likely to accept it as fact, or are you more likely to approach it with some skepticism? Um, and for me, I, I know this is true, and I imagine that for a lot of you it's the truth as well. Um, I'm more prone to being skeptical. Um, now, if I'm being honest again, part of that for me is, is my background in police work. That, that kind of... Um, tainted my view of a lot of things and, and a lot of uh, a lot of things really but so I, I am definitely more likely to be skeptical when things don't look right things don't sound right um, if the facts and the circumstances presented don't lead me to a rational conclusion or if everything doesn't quite line up I'm probably going to be skeptical um, and, and that's especially true with people um, not, not saying that's a good thing for me. Um, sometimes it's probably much more extreme than it should be, but it is the truth. Um, but I want to take that just a step farther. So if you are a skeptical person, what makes you that way? Um, why, why do you think that is? And I would think, I, I know for myself, but for most of us, the answer to that question is experience. Um, the experiences that we've had with people, the experiences that we've had in situations um, that we, you know, we, we just had some sort of a feeling about. We, we thought, you know, something just ain't quite right here. Um, maybe, maybe it was something obvious. Maybe it was something that we just couldn't quite put our fingers on. Um, but later on, we found out that if we, you know, if we had trusted our gut, if we had trusted our first instincts, that we would have probably been better off. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of situations like that, and I know we've all experienced situations like that. Um, and sometimes when we get to those, into those kinds of situations where we find out after the fact that, you know, maybe something wasn't right, sometimes it hurts, right? Sometimes it's not a good feeling. And um, 
for most of us, once we've had that feeling, we would prefer not to repeat it, um, not to keep making those same kinds of mistakes. So what we do is that we take steps to guard ourselves, to protect ourselves. And, and one of the things that happens, I think, is skepticism. Um, but for some of us, and, and I might be on, on the far end of this scale, but for some of us, skepticism can become cynicism. Uh, that's a big dictionary word, but, but what it means is that we look at people as being generally untrustworthy, right? So like I said, for me, I could be on the far end of that scale. I'm not saying it's a good thing, just being honest. Um, it could be easy for us to come to the conclusion that, that some people, or even most people, are, are out for their own good that that's all that they're looking for, that, that, that they're willing to do anything. They're willing to lie. They're willing to cheat. They're willing to steal to get whatever it is that they want. Um, but if we get there, if we're in that place, then again, we, we tend to have a fairly dim view of people in general. Um, and like I said, that, that's not always a bad idea. But the idea that I want to submit to you today is if that's our attitude toward Jesus, it's always a bad idea. If that's the attitude that we take toward Jesus, skepticism, um, it's always a bad idea. So um, the question that I mentioned earlier that I, want you to, that I wanted to ask you today is, how do we know that Jesus was and is who he said he was? How do we know that Jesus was and is who he said he was? Um, and then, to take that a step farther, how do we help other people come to that same conclusion as well. Um, so really, this is all a question of faith. Um, it's, it's a question of what it means to believe in Jesus, which is a question of faith. Um, because if we believe that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, uh, that he still is, in fact, who he said he was, um, if we believe that Jesus really was the very Word of God in flesh, like the Scripture tells us, um, if we believe that Jesus was God in human form, like the Scripture tells us, then that can help us deal with a lot of the other doubts that, that might come up as well. Um, if Jesus really was God in flesh, if we accept that as being true, then we should also accept the fact that everything, every word that he had to say about eternity and salvation must be the truth. Must be the truth. Now, if not, because that's a possibility too, if we choose not to see Jesus that way, um, we might look at him as being just one religious option among lots of other religious options because there are other religious options in the world. Um, no good ones, but there are some. Um, and if, if that's the case, if we choose that view, then we could look at all the things that Jesus said um, and disregard them with speculation. Or um, we could, and, and really we could do that with no consequences if we choose to believe Jesus is not who he says he is. Now, there will be consequences, um, but in the immediate time. So, Here's another C.S. Lewis quote for y'all, and this is a fairly long one, but it's a really, really good one. Um, I like C.S. Lewis. He was a whole lot better thinker than I am, um, so I, I like his stuff. But this one, he's talking about this very subject. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, and him being Jesus. He said, 
I'm ready that some people would say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a great um, moral teacher and said the sort of things that Jesus said would, would not have been a great moral teacher. He would have been either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, how Jesus has not left that open to us to decide. Um, see, it's really important that we make a decision about who Jesus is about whether or not we believe that Jesus was, in fact, and is, in fact, who he said he was. Um, it's really important because there's no middle ground. There is no middle ground. We can fool ourselves into thinking that there's middle ground, but there's not any middle ground. Um, and sadly, failing to make a decision, once we've been presented with the good news of the gospel, is making a decision, right? Failing to decide whether or not Jesus was and is who he said he was after we've been presented with the good news of the gospel, that's a decision, and it's the wrong one because there is no middle ground. So today, um, I want us to take a look at probably one of the more widely known stories of skepticism or doubt in Scripture. And just by saying that word, some of you already know what story I'm talking about by saying the word doubt. Um, it's the story about Thomas. And one of the things that, that makes this a, a more widely known or a more famous story is Thomas's character flaw, right? That he was a doubter, um, that he did have doubts. Um, as a matter of fact, he, he came to be known as Doubting Thomas, right? If, you, if you've been involved in church for any length of time, you've probably heard somebody say that, Doubting Thomas. Um, so in John chapter 20, that's where I want to pick up this morning. John chapter 20, we, we find that Jesus has been crucified. He was nailed to a cross. He died there. His body was laid in a, in a borrowed tomb, and then a huge stone was rolled over that tomb to seal it up. Um, and then he had been there for three days, which by Jewish standards, what that really means is that, not, not, this is not figurative, he really was there for three days, but by Jewish standards, that means he was good and dead. There was no chance by their standards and their culture that he was going to get up out of that grave and walk out because he was really dead if he had been there for those three days. But early that morning, just before daylight, Scripture tells us that Mary came to that tomb and she found it open and empty. Um, so what did she do? Well, she ran to tell Peter and John, and, and they got into um, one of the first ever recorded foot races that happened in the world. How do we know it was a foot race? Well, it must have been because John tells us in his gospel that he was a clear winner of this race. He says that he outran Peter and got there first. Um, but they walked there. They got there after, after running to the tomb. They got there. They, um, they looked inside, and based on the evidence that was presented to them, um, 
John became the first person to believe in the resurrection, to believe that Jesus indeed was alive, that he had left that tomb. Um, now, there's one piece of evidence in that story, if you read through it, that really stands out. Um, and, and this particular piece of evidence, I think, shows us that, that it was not a, a burglar or a, a grave robber, as some people might imagine, that had gone into that tomb prior to them getting there and taking Jesus out. And, and that is that the Scripture tells us that the cloth that had wrapped his body was laying there and that the cloth that had been wrapped around his head was folded neatly and laying off to the side. Well, ask yourself this question. Would a burglar have taken the time to unwrap a body that would have already been beginning to decay by that time, unwrap it and leave the cloth there before they, they, they left with the body? And the answer to that question is certainly not. Um, I heard somebody say recently, and they were kind of maybe taking a little liberty with that part of the scripture, but they said one of the most amazing things and, and one of the most miraculous things about that is that Jesus, being a single man, took the time to make his bed when he got up. Um, but again, those things, that, that points us to the fact that there's something going on here. Um, so, then it goes on to say that Peter and John went back to their homes, but Mary, she decided to hang around. So she became the first person to see Jesus alive after his resurrection from the dead. Um, and so she went about spreading the word. She left from there eventually after seeing Jesus and went to tell other people about it. And again, from a cultural perspective, that's a really important detail. Um, and the reason is that in that culture, if you wanted to tell somebody something and convince them that it was absolutely 100% the truth, and it was something that was going to be hard to believe anyway, you wouldn't send a woman to tell that story to be the first one to tell that story because from a cultural perspective, every, or a lot of people um, would have brushed it off simply for the fact that it came from a woman. Now, that's from a cultural perspective. Now, y'all don't go saying that I said that women is liars. That ain't what I'm saying. Um, but but from in that day, in that age, that would have been very true. Um, so later on that evening, Jesus appeared to at least... 10 of his disciples, and they were hiding in fear in a room with a door locked. And the reason that they were in fear is because they thought maybe they might be the next to be arrested and killed. Um, and notice I said that there were at least 10 of them there, and there might have been more, but we know for sure that Judas wasn't there and that Thomas wasn't there. Um, so of the original 12, at least two were missing. Um, but the other disciples later, after Thomas got back, told him, what had happened? They, they told him what they had seen, that they had seen Jesus for themselves. And this is what Thomas said. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And I can't help but feel just a little bit bad for him. Um, I can't help it. Because you know, because that statement that he made, because of that, he's been branded now for more than 2,000 years as Doubting Thomas. Well, I don't know when it started, but uh, it's been a long time. A long time he's been known by that brand. Um, but he wasn't the only person in Scripture that doubted. There were other people in Scripture who doubted as well. They just didn't get the name to go along with it. Um, so I can't help but feel a little bit bad for him. But now let's fast forward eight days later. Um, 
This time the disciples were together, the scripture tells us, and Thomas, in fact, was with them. It says that um, Jesus came into the room again. Even though the doors were locked, he came into the room and he stood among them. And he said to the group, peace be with you. Those were the words that they needed to hear, right? That, that's exactly what they needed to hear in that moment. Um, so, so that's what he said. But then something miraculous again happens. He, 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 he addressed Thomas directly, um, which here, that's, that's another example from Scripture of, of Jesus leaving the group, not, not physically leaving because he stayed there in the room, but he, he took time to go after the one, right? The only person in that room at that point who, that we know of that had chosen not to believe, that's the one that Jesus chose to address in that moment, and that was Thomas. Um, and the things that he said to Thomas in that moment, he said, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and, and place it in my side. He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus addressed every word that Thomas had expressed in his doubt, right? The things that Thomas said that would have to happen in order for him to believe, Jesus addressed every one of them there in that room in that moment. And Thomas's response was this, my Lord and my God. Scripture's got an exclamation point right there when it says that. He was excited about it. This was a, a great moment of recognition, my Lord and my God. But remember, Jesus wasn't there initially when Thomas had expressed his doubts, right? So that tells us a couple of things about Jesus after the resurrection. It tells us that Jesus is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere all at the same time, and he is also omniscient, which means he knows everything. That's pretty amazing. Um, then Jesus went on to say this to Thomas. He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now that verse is right near the very end of John's gospel. In, in fact, it's, it's the last of three verses at the end of John's gospel. Um, and in the next two verses, the very last two verses of John's gospel, John says this. He says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples um, that he did not write about, that he had chosen not to write about. He said, but the ones that he did write about, including this particular story about doubting Thomas, um, he says that they were all written so that we might believe. So the whole purpose for John's writing is expressed in that statement. Um, all his writing was done to encourage faith and to help answer questions of faith. That was the whole purpose in his writing. So now I want us to think for just a minute about some of the reasons that Thomas might have been skeptical. And, and maybe, um, maybe in doing that we can find a little grace for him. And maybe we can find a little grace for some of the people around us who might be a little bit skeptical as well. Um, now here's a, here's, this might be a little bit shocking to you, but it's, it's the truth. Um, Dead people didn't get up and walk out of graves back then any more than they do now. Right? This was unusual. Other than Lazarus, as far as we know, it had never happened. 
And in the case of Lazarus, it was Jesus standing there calling him out of the grave. It wasn't that Lazarus brought himself out of the grave, right? This was an unusual occurrence. Um, to take it a little bit deeper, Jewish people, which Thomas was, as far as we know, um, they, they, were looking, they, they weren't looking for the kind of a Messiah who would be crucified, dead, and then resurrected. That messed up their whole plan or their whole idea of what was supposed to happen. They were, um, they, they were expecting a Messiah who would conquer the world, not one that would die for the world. Um, nobody in that day, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, were, were expecting a Messiah who would be publicly put to shame and tortured. Right? That wasn't, again, that just wasn't what they were looking for. Um, and then when Jesus died, that shattered, shattered every expectation that they could have had about how this whole Messiah thing was supposed to work. When he died, that just, that just blew it out the window, right? It just wasn't supposed to be that way in their minds. Um, they, they were expecting somebody who the, one of the first things that he would do would be to free them from Roman oppression. Well, that didn't happen. Um, so for Thomas and for a lot of other people, there was no natural or sensible explanation for all this, right? It, it, just, it, just, didn't all, it just didn't add up. Um, I think Thomas probably wanted to believe, um, but think about this. If nothing else, his heart and the hearts of all the disciples prior to seeing Jesus in, in, in his resurrected form, um, their hearts were completely broken. Right, again, everything that they had thought of, everything that they had dreamed of, everything that they had been looking for, when he died, all those dreams and hopes went out the window um, for three days. Um, so now, um, Thomas's buddies show up, and, and they tell him a story. And, and the, sto the story that they told him without faith uh, was absolutely unbelievable. That a man who had been dead, good and dead, that they had all seen die, had got up out of a grave and walked away. Without faith, that's an unbelievable story. And Thomas's response was disbelief. Right, is that crazy? No, no, not, not without faith. Um, so again, that, that would seem to be a pretty normal reaction to hearing such a story. Um, but I, I would imagine that there might be somebody here in this room, there, there might be somebody listening online who wants to believe. Maybe that's what you came here today for. Maybe that's the thing that brought you here today is that you want to believe, but you just can't quite get your head wrapped around, your heart wrapped around all this, right? All the miraculous stories in Scripture. Um, maybe, there, maybe there's somebody like that. Um, but the resurrection story, for some, is a very difficult idea to get their hearts and their minds wrapped around because, again, it is not normal. Um, so maybe, maybe, though, for some people, they have doubts or skepticism about other parts of the Bible. Um, but the resurrection is critical. But maybe for some, it, it's about, you know, this, this great whole great flood idea, right, that God flooded the whole wide world and that he chose to save one man and his family from all that. Um, 
I'll give you a little side note from some personal experience on that. Um, I've been to the Midwest a few times, and there's a spot, uh, a stone monument out in the middle of nowhere that says it's the geographic center of the United States. So in other words, you're right in the middle of the United States. And, and, and in that same area, um, I've been on a dirt road and looked down at the ground and seen rocks with seashell fossils in those rocks. Now, how in the world could that be if there hadn't been seawater at that location in the geographic center of the United States at some point in history? It's pretty amazing to me. Um, or, but maybe, you know, going back to that same flood idea, how, how was it that after all that happened that God destroyed everybody in the world with a great big flood, how was it that his son went to another part of the world and found a wife? Scripture tells us that happened, right? Um, Maybe somebody might wonder how Joshua and his army could march around the walls of a city singing some songs and one day blow a trumpet and the walls of that city fall down. Right? There's another story from Scripture that might be a little bit hard to believe. Um, but maybe, maybe somebody heard a college professor talking about all the different contradictions that are in Scripture. Well, there, there really are none, but there's a lot of people in the world who would tell you that there are. Um, Maybe there's some historical event that people would think just doesn't quite line up with some part of the Bible. But, but it's really important to understand that the Bible is not a complete book of history and it's not a complete book of science. That's not what it was written for. Um, scripture, the Bible as we know it, was written to tell God's redemption story for humanity. That's why the Bible was written. It wasn't intended to be a complete book of history or science. It contains both, but that wasn't the purpose. It was, it, it was written, and, and we have it today in order to tell us God's redemption plan for humanity. Um, but there's still a lot of voices in the world who just try real hard to discount Christianity altogether. Um, so, so think about this story, this story of Thomas. Think about it um, from, from the, the frame of reference or even the whole Bible story, the whole resurrection story. Think about it um, from, from the point of view of a person who doesn't have any experience with church, a person that doesn't have any experience with biblical teaching. Um, see, I think sometimes that we church folk, church people, right, people who come to church on a regular basis or have been involved in church for, you know, long periods of time and now we've maybe been gone but we're coming back, I think it can be easy for us to forget just how wild all this might sound. All these stories, these miraculous stories that we find in Scripture. Maybe this person that, that we wanted to minister to or we might be trying to talk to about the gospel, maybe they're at the lowest point of their lives, and we show up with a story that we tell them is absolutely the whole solution to the whole whatever problem it is that they're facing. And here's the story. A man was born 2,000 years ago, and he saved the world by dying. Right? Um, and then to take it a step farther, one day soon he's going to come back again, and when he does, he'll restore peace to this world. Um, and when he does it, he'll be coming through the clouds riding on a white horse. D does that sound wild? It does. It does. Um, so, 
What I want you to notice here is what happens in these verses when Thomas meets Jesus face to face. Um, Jesus didn't hit him with a big long sermon with a whole lot of these and thou's and verily's when his best king's English. That's not what he did. He didn't do that at all. He simply said, see for yourself. See for yourself. Jesus didn't offer Thomas an explanation. What he offered Thomas was a revelation. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't offer Thomas an explanation. He offered him a revelation. Jesus revealed to Thomas exactly what he needed to believe in that moment. Um, see, our faith, our faith should not be anchored in an explanation. Our faith should be anchored in an event. And that event was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. That's the event that we'll be celebrating here in just a few weeks on Easter Sunday. Um, we'll, we'll celebrate not only that the tomb was empty, but we'll also celebrate that Jesus showed himself to hundreds of people after he walked out of that tomb People just like Thomas, people who needed to see that. Um, and he did that as indisputable evidence that indeed he was and is alive. You see, Jesus confronted Thomas with the reality of the resurrection. He confronted him with the reality of the resurrection. He said, see for yourself. Touch it for yourself. Um, I read something recently that said faith happens when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. When the unexplainable meets the undeniable, that's when faith happens. And that's exactly what happened in that room there that night. All of the unexplainable circumstances concerning Jesus' resurrection, at least in human terms, um, he explained standing there in front of Thomas, alive in the flesh. He did it all right there. Um, and to take it even a step farther, he, he, he reached out his hand and he said, touch these holes in my hands. Feel them for yourself. Put your hand in the hole in my side. He presented Thomas with indisputable evidence that he was, in fact, who he, who he had said that he was. Um, the unexplainable at that moment, as far as Thomas was concerned, had met the undeniable. Um, Christianity, and, and I'm going way, way back, Christianity didn't start with people who believed something. Christianity began with people who saw something. They saw a man crucified, dead, and buried, and then they saw an empty tomb. They saw him after he had walked out of that tomb. That is where Christianity began. Um, so if you're here today and you find yourself having doubts, or maybe you just have questions about some of these miraculous stories that we see in Scripture, or about the resurrection in particular, because again, that is the central concept of Christianity, the resurrection. Um, how would those doubts, how would those doubts stand up 
if Jesus were standing in front of you with his hands held out and inviting you to touch the holes in his hands? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. Because the unexplainable would have met the undeniable. Um, our, our response in that situation would have to be the same response that Thomas had to, to cry out, my Lord and my God. That's all we could do. That's all we could do. Um, see, again, the, the, the foundations of the church, and again, going way back, the foundations of the church wasn't based on the things that the apostles taught. Um, it was based on what Jesus did. That's where the foundation of the church was, on, on what Jesus did. And that's where it still is today. Um, now, for somebody who is having doubts, um, one answer to that, to that might be, you know, the question of why, why do you believe what you believe? Well, well, one easy answer would be because the Bible tells me so. Right? We've been singing that for a long, long time if we've been involved in church. Right? Because the Bible tells me so. And that's true. But that's not going to answer the questions of somebody who is truly skeptical, right? Um, so there might, that's not, maybe not a bad answer, but it may not be the best answer either. The, the simple fact is that there are tons of sources. There's tons of historical fact out there unrelated to the Bible, um, not, in, not written in Scripture. There's tons of evidence um, that verifies the things that Scripture says. Right? And sometimes the absence of evidence is evidence. Sometimes what's not there to be seen is evidence. Um, for example, almost all scholars, biblical scholars, agree that most, if not all, of the New Testament scripture that we have today was written within a generation of the resurrection. All right, so, so follow with me here. It was almost all written within a generation of Jesus' resurrection. So what that means is that when these letters and, and the Gospels were written, there would have been plenty of people alive who had seen Jesus after his resurrection, right? Um, and, and if that had not happened, if those people, if, you know, if there was some, some idea that this wasn't indeed the fact, um, there would have been a whole lot of people yelling, hey, that ain't true. That didn't happen. But we don't have one account of anybody telling us in, in, in those days that it wasn't true, right? Because if somebody had stood up and said, I was there, I went to the tomb four days later, and there was still a body in that tomb, or I stole the body and ran off with it. If we had somebody telling us that, that would be the headline that we were reading today. Right, that, that would be the biggest story in history. Um, again, scholars agree that Paul, his writing in 1 Corinthians, they, the, uh, scholars agree that that was written within 20 years of Jesus' resurrection, so not long at all. Um, and in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul asserts that Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection which is the same thing that I'm trying to assert here this morning. Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection. But Paul went on to say in chapter 15 that more than 500 people saw Jesus who had been dead. They saw him alive. And a lot of those people, Paul says, were still alive at the time of his writing to the church in Corinth. Now, if that was a lie, 
That letter that Paul wrote would have been balled up and thrown in somebody's trash can or it would have been used to start a fire, right? We wouldn't be looking at it today. We wouldn't have it in our Bible to look at today if those words were not the truth. Either way, whether it had been balled up or thrown in a trash can, we wouldn't have it today. So consider this for just a minute. Most, if not all, of Jesus' disciples and the apostles, most, if not all, of the people who began telling this story of Jesus' resurrection met a martyr's death. And some of them died in some really horrific ways, um, um, terrible ways. And, and Peter, I think, is probably the best example of that. And, and I choose Peter particularly because if you know Peter's story and about his denial of Jesus, well, Peter, on the night of Jesus' arrest, he folded like a wet paper bag in front of a teenage girl at a bonfire. I mean, if you really think about it, that's what happened. He folded like a wet paper bag in front of a teenage girl at a bonfire on the night that Jesus was arrested. Um, but later on, history tells us that he was crucified, meaning that he himself was nailed to a cross and he himself was hung upside down until he died. And he did not recant his story of the resurrection. Because, again, if he had, we would know about it today. Um, I heard somebody say recently that on the night Jesus was arrested, when Peter drew his sword and cut off the, the soldier's ear, um, which I think means he had bad aim. That's, that's my opinion. I think he was swinging for his head and missed and hit his ear. But, um, but I heard somebody say that on that night, Jesus, or Peter was willing to kill for Jesus, but he wasn't willing to die for Jesus. He was willing to kill for him, but he wasn't willing to die for him that night. But something changed. Something changed in Peter because later on, in fact, he did. And the thing that changed was that he saw the resurrected Savior. That's what changed. Um, so ask yourself this question. If all these people who had reportedly seen Jesus alive, raised from the dead, if all of them were lying about it, what did they hope to gain from such a lie? What, what was it that they were looking for if they had made up this lie? If a group of men got together and went on a fishing trip and the fish weren't biting that day, and you know what? They came up with the conclusion, hey, let's make up a lie about Jesus being raised from the dead. And one of them said, yeah, let's do that because we can make some money with that. And somebody said, nope, there's a whole lot of people that don't want to hear that. Right? There's some people that are going to want to kill us if we tell that story. Right? They didn't dock their boat and start telling that story to try to gain money or fame or power or anything like that. So what did they hope to gain, right? Um, all of the people, all of those people who began telling the story of Jesus and his resurrection, they suffered for it. Some of them suffered horribly for it. Um, another quote that I read this week said this. It said that when people know that what they are saying is a lie, they are motivated to fill their own pockets with money, not to be beaten or whipped or imprisoned or killed. And that's what a lot of these people got for telling this story of Jesus' resurrection. Um, if you think about it, making up such a lie and sticking with it to the point of death is pretty amazing. I mean, that's really, really, really amazing. Um, 
I was telling somebody just the other night or last night, night before anyway, if you, if you know who Chuck Colson is and if you've ever heard his story, Chuck Colson was involved with Richard Nixon in the days leading up to the, uh, the Watergate scandal. And just prior to people getting arrested in that scandal, he being one of them, he and a group of men who were close to Richard Nixon, um, and, and I'm talking about men's men here. I'm talking about CIA, ex-special forces, I mean, some, some real tough dudes. They had all gotten together and agreed that no matter what happened, they wouldn't tell what they knew, no matter what. They, they were going to keep their mouths shut. Now, prior to this, Chuck Colson had been an atheist. After they got arrested, within about three days, every one of them to the man had told everything that they knew. And that's when he realized that he needed to follow Jesus. Because if these group of men and women who had followed him for so long died the way that they died and never recanted their stories, it had to be the truth. It had to be the truth. Um, now, history goes on to tell us that Thomas, the doubter, became one of the first people to die a martyr's death for Christianity. One of the first. That's pretty amazing. Um, so finally, and I'm, I'm almost done, finally I, I want to say this. There is no substitute for first-hand experience. There's no substitute for first-hand experience. Um, but the good news is that Jesus, he still offers us all first-hand experience just like he offered to Thomas. He does. He really does. Now, maybe we can't see him exactly like Thomas did, and maybe we can't touch him exactly like Thomas did, but we are those people who Jesus was talking about when he said that those who have not seen and yet believed are blessed. We are those people. Um, but if, if, if we will come to Jesus with enough childlike faith to say, I believe, I believe. If we can do just that, Jesus will meet us there. Jesus will meet us there. And he will indeed help our unbelief. He'll do that. He'll do that by giving us experience with his faithfulness as we choose to follow him. That's how we build trust in God. That's how we build trust in Jesus, by experiencing his faithfulness. He is always faithful. Um, so even for people that still have questions, as we walk with Jesus, just a closer walk with thee, like we, we sang earlier, as we walk with Jesus, he'll help answer those questions. He will show us the answer to those questions if we can come to him with just enough childlike faith to say, I believe. There's a lot of people in this room who can testify to that. There are a lot of people who can testify to their experience with a faithful God. I believe that wholeheartedly today. Um, I believe that everybody who has chosen faith has a testimony. Every person who has chosen to believe in Jesus as their Savior has a testimony to offer. And I also believe this. For everyone who does, there's somebody that needs to hear it. There's somebody in this world that needs to hear your testimony. I believe it. Um, 
And perhaps, sometimes, just like with Thomas, the best idea is not some sort of a, a, a deep, biblical, scholarly explanation of the gospel. Sometimes, the best way to tell somebody the good news of Jesus' love for them is to show it to them. Somewhat, sometimes, it's, it's to show it to them. Um, tell them the good news. Tell them what Jesus has done for us. Tell them what Jesus has done for them and invite them to experience his faithfulness for themselves. Revelation 19.10 says this. It says that testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And, and what that means simply is that when we speak in the name of Jesus, his spirit will be there with us. His spirit will meet us there. His spirit will begin to work. When people see Jesus in you, it might help them come to believe in Jesus for themselves. It might help them come to believe for themselves, even those with doubts that indeed Jesus is alive. So the final question for today, who needs to hear your testimony? Ask yourself that question. Who is it that needs to hear your testimony? Who is looking to see Jesus in you? Somebody is. And maybe, maybe you don't know the answer to that question, but I, I want to encourage you to ask God to show you who might be looking to see Jesus in you, who might need to hear your testimony. And, and that can be a scary proposition, y'all. I realize that. But also, I would invite you to ask God for the courage and the wisdom to share it in a way that they can see it. And here's what I believe. And this is, this is, this is it. I'm done. I'm done. If you do that, if you'll step out in faith and tell somebody else about your faith, Jesus will meet you there. I'm absolutely convinced. And a lot of times, you'll find out that he was there before you got there, and he's already been working on it. I believe it. So now, if anybody here doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, today is the day. If you've been hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to you and you've been saying, you know what, I want to believe, but I still got some doubts. Let's make it today. Let's make it today, as the Scripture says, while it can still be called today. Because today will never be today again. And one day, it'll be too late. So if you, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to invite Jesus into your heart and have a relationship with him, he is ready, he is waiting, he will meet you there. All you have to do is ask. You can do it where you're sitting, you can do it here at this altar, but please don't wait. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, Lord thank you for this opportunity to stand here and, and offer the good news of your gospel, to offer the truth of your love to this group of people gathered here in this room, Lord, to anybody who might be watching online. Lord, I'm thankful. I am grateful. Lord, thank you. Lord, as scary as it may be, it is an honor for me to try at least to be your servant, Lord. If that, even if all I do is try, Lord, I, I thank you, and, and I believe, Lord, that, that what I can't do, you can and, Lord, I thank you for your love and your grace and your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for each person here today, for each family represented here today. Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know you as Savior, Lord, I believe that one of the things that brought him, them here today is that 
you have begun to move in their hearts and their minds, and Lord, I am thankful for that. Lord, for some of us, we know people, family, friends, uh, complete strangers, Lord, that we might encounter on the street who need to know Jesus. And Lord, for each and every one of us, I pray that you would help us each day that would live a life, help us to live a life that shows other people the Jesus living in us. Lord, help us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world that others might come to know you. Lord, that the things that we do and the things that we say might be for your glory and for the glory of your kingdom. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, say.
has no sorrow.